0: Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down brought to you by KDD Media Company.
1: Well, what's the what happened to the person's life? Well, they completed treatment. Yeah, so what? I completed my jail sentence. That didn't mean anything. Yeah. Like really what happens is is the treatment didn't give the proper tools for the person to make it through to the next steps and the continuum of care that exists after that. We don't get people jobs. We don't work on people's trauma. Their sole focus is you use drugs here, write a set of steps and do this and you'll be better. And then go to a meeting uh, uh, every day at seven o'clock. It's like, that's
0: it. We'll be talking to Guy Felicella, but first a word from a few of our sponsors. This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O. And be sure to add the Knocking Doors Down podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. This episode of Knocking Doors Down is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code KDD at manscaped.com. That's manscaped.com and use the code KDD. Guy Felicella is our guest this week and this is Knocking Doors Down, a podcast all about those who have been through some dark times and adversity but turned their lives around and are doing positive things. I'm your host, Jason The Chance. been through some uh, various stuff, of course, raise the hand, I am an alcoholic, and of course, my co-host, Mikey Naraki, he's no different. What is going on, people? He's gotten busted a time or two. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Our guest, a Guy Felicella, he doing some great work. He, he's so polite because, well, he's Canadian. He's what are you Canadian? Do? They're super nice. <laughs> I love it. it. It's it's a it's. Nice talking to him. <laughs> he's an extraordinary man. Uh, spent 20 years on the streets uh, in active addiction. It's amazing that a he's still around and alive. But now a thriving man, not only giving back and helping those uh, you know seeking recovery and in active addiction, but a family man, married, mm-hmm. kids, the beautiful whole family. Yeah, yeah, just a true example of knocking doors down that you can turn your life around. And he's just such a pleasure to talk to. So this conversation is not only insightful, but we got some good humor in there, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited for it. And uh, we can't do any of this without 5150LTM. We are living the madness. Wherever you see us on social media, when we're out doing interviews, whatever it is, if you're checking us out on our YouTube channel, Instagram, Facebook, or even at KDD Media Company on Twitter, you'll see we're rocking the 5150 gear and you can do the same. How, Jason? Well, just uh, click the link in the podcast description and use the code KDD20 for 20% off. What was it? KDD20 for 20% off. Sick. Guy Felicella. Welcoming to Knocking Doors Down, Guy Felicella. How are you, good sir?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Heck yeah! Really excited to speak with you. Like I was saying, you know, the power power of Twitter. Before we recorded, I'm like, oh man, I got to talk to this gentleman. He's he, we got to talk to this gentleman. Sorry, Mikey. Yeah, I'm here too. <laughs> Jeez, I don't mean to be a dick, but boy, uh, what a story. Um, let's talk before we get into your addiction history. Uh, what are you doing now? I mean, of course, lockdown. It's a little bit more of a challenge, but just out there. Uh, spreading the good word uh, about addiction, substance abuse, and really a different way of looking at substance abuse and recovery.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, now I I work for the Provincial uh, Overdose Emergency Response Center. I also work for the BC Center on Substance Use. And I also work for Coastal Health Regional Addiction Program. But I've also got my own company, where I public speak openly in high schools, universities, uh, educating people on both aspects and all platforms such as harm reduction and recovery initiatives, uh, just to let people know like, hey, listen, if you're struggling, like we're here to help. And so the response from, you know, I think my biggest passion is going in and educating our youth. Uh, I think that is the most important thing. And they enjoy hearing it from me, not from some police officer that's going to come in and arrest them for doing. <laughs>
0: uh, Which uh, one of you does drugs? Raise your hand. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I am not going to speak up. Uh, just for people know, when when guys refer to BC, he's up in Canada, British Columbia. So uh, this is uh, this is cool because I love it up there and have some family lineage uh, from Canada, but. So I want to ask you a question. You, you talk a lot, a lot about harm reduction. Uh, can you clarify for people what you mean by harm reduction? Because it's not often used when we're talking about recovery because you say the two go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, recovery is really, it's not always about the drugs, right? Like, you know, I always say this, listen, if, if you're doing drugs, that's fine. But if drugs are doing you, Maybe we got to look at something, right? (laughs) But, you know, a lot of the times in today's day and age where the drugs are so toxic out there uh, that people first time experimental use and all these other aspects, you don't need a tolerance for this illicit drug supply. It'll just kill you dead. And so harm reduction comes in with its approach of meeting people where they're at and allowing them to have access to other Uh, safer alternatives than to the illicit drug supply. And to me, uh, you know, my recovery started years before I ever got sober. Hmm. Like I always had the desire to stop. It was just so freaking hard to get there. Mm -hmm. But that desire is what motivated me and drove me inside. It's like, you know, hey, every time I relapse, I didn't beat myself up. I just got back up. And kept trying until I figured it out.
0: Right. Well, and is there at that time when you got sober, because you've been uh, nearly 20 years sober now? No, not that long. Eight Uh, years, though. Eight years. Okay. All right. So I misread something there. But uh, was there the resources that were there available, let alone, you know, it's great that you're out educating because nothing is prevention like education.
1: Right. Well, hey, you know what? I'm... I wouldn't have recovery if I didn't have uh, harm reduction services in my life. Like I am walking, living proof that harm reduction kept me alive long enough to give me the ability to find a pathway to recovery. And there is no recovery in my life without harm reduction. Mm-hmm. So the two is like, you know, running a relay race, the badon passing. Yeah. You know, we're on the same team trying to do the same thing. We're just trying to save a life. And sometimes you have to understand with substance users is that's, that's the challenge. And if it's driven by trauma, our substance use disorder or our addictions are driven by childhood trauma or trauma, we don't go actually and do enough to address the traumas of why people are using drugs in the first place. And so these are the challenges to that, where I say, listen, people don't recover when they're gone. they're dead. Yeah. There's yeah. no more that's it. And then the family has to live with that. Uh, communities have to live with that. It's truly heartbreaking in our society of so many people that are losing their lives to, you know, a substance use disorder in today's day and age.
2: Yeah. Guy, I kind of want to back up a little bit. So you said that you started your recovery before you got sober, which is, it's a little different from a we're hearing because, you know, when we talk to a lot of people, they're okay with the fact that this is me now. I can't see myself quitting. I just, th- this is how it is. So can you elaborate a little bit more? Like what was going through your head during your addiction? Like, so you obviously knew it was bad. You obviously knew you wanted to get better. You just didn't, obviously the addiction yeah. overtook, but can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, I think for me, the one thing is that, well, you know, I tried bouts of treatments and, sure. and had some success in sobriety. And then what kept coming back was that underlying trauma. The trauma never got addressed. And so that is so painful for people. I mean, you know what? You're carrying a boulder, of shame, you know, self, uh, like low self-worth, self-hatred. You have all these feelings that are going on that become so unbearable. And it's just like, screw this. Like Mm -hmm. I need to distract. This is painful. I've always said that the voices that were in my head were the ones that were the screaming so loud that I just needed them to shut up Yeah. and drugs did that. Drugs took that away, yeah. but that didn't mean that I wasn't trying to find something better. I mean, my life was miserable. I'm in the downtown East side of Vancouver for two decades, homeless living in a two block radius, you know, People walking by on the street, and I'm sitting on a piece of cardboard. You ask me how I'm doing. I'm looking at you like, well, it doesn't look like I'm doing enjoying myself, does <laughs> right, it? Right. Like, so it's 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 one of those things where, um, even though you know inside, you know, I just I knew that I could figure it out. I just. Didn't have the time, was on my side to figure it out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you know, you state in, on your um, website about your bio, grew up in a middle class home. But addiction fell to you at a young age and you've referred to to trauma. Do you uh, are you OK with going into some of those trauma things that, that led to it? I mean, when we say middle class, everybody, you know, I'll make that medically. Thanks. Married mom and dad, the white picket fence in and, and a good yeah. scenario. But, you know, you fell into addiction, gangs and like you said, living on a two block radius in downtown for nearly two decades.
1: I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, obviously, for I dealt with, I think, verbal abuse, which a lot of people often don't attribute to that as being as destructive as other abuses. Mm -hmm. But verbal abuse to me was the thing that damaged me the worst because you have a young mind that's growing up and being constantly told that it's garbage. And going into school, I was classified as hyper difficult and very hard to manage Um, not anything to look at the I didn't get diagnosed with anything they just left it undiagnosed it was diagnosed later in my life where I found out I have ADHD and a mild comprehension disorder and I remember the therapist saying that to me you know what I said to her I had tears going down my face I said I I've always believed I was stupid And nobody's going to share that with somebody. You know, you're going to hold, that was a big weight lifted off my shoulder. And she says, guy, you're far from stupid. You're actually one of the smartest people I've ever met because you had to navigate your life through having this undiagnosis. And I said, but everybody keeps saying it was the drugs. And she was saying, well, they didn't look deep enough. And that's where I think a lot of in our society, people just see the drugs and the action and, you know, the behavior that comes from it. And we judge because of that, but we don't look deeper. What's the story? Why the drugs? And once we get there, we figure out, you know, a lot of people have misdiagnosed dyslexia, ADHD, and OCD, other issues that have really hampered their lives. And the self-medication of the illicit street drugs was really...
3: That
0: was my medication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh no, It sounds familiar. Is a, a, a dyslexic, uh, you know, still a struggle. I mean, shoot, we were talking with Charlie Sheen and he's like, yeah, I had this terrible stutter and got made fun of. And, you know, you don't think about those kind of things oftentimes, let alone that incredibly powerful negative self-talk. Like you said, that, that voice that starts from those that are supposed to nurture and love us at a young age. And it creates so much negativity that when we talk to ourselves, which we do more than anyone else on the planet, that it's all negative and it's so self-destructive and self-loathing and it just takes you to a bottom.
1: Yeah. I often say when I was 12 years old and I first actively started using substances, if I didn't do those drugs, I would have ended my life. Like that's the truth. And then when I look later on in life, here's the conflict though. As it's getting progressing and getting worse, those same drugs that saved my life are now trying to end my life. And it's like, oh my God, how do I let this go? It's kind of like that thing where you have that coping mechanism because it wasn't developed as a child. The drugs replaced all mechanisms. And to let that go to somebody, it leaves you exposed to the traumas, exposed to the abuse, the negative voices come back, And you feel like ending your life. And I tell you, the only way that I tried, like many treatment facilities, when I started to get success in my life, it was really through trauma therapy, uh, EMDR therapy. Mm. And those therapies started to give me the understanding of the abuse and my relationship with those drugs. And I realized, oh, my God, I'm learning coping skills here. Now it's the distraction isn't the drugs anymore. I'm trying to distract myself from using the drugs. <laughs>
0: right. yeah. uh, talk a little bit more about EMDR, maybe for people that are listening or watching on the YouTube channel don't know about it. It's a, it's a pretty interesting form that goes hand in hand with trauma therapy.
1: Yeah, it's just a rapid eye movement therapy that's actually supposed to repair uh, your coping skills in your mind to actually give you new skills to deal with the past traumas. And I, you know what? It's honestly, when I first started doing it, I'm thinking, it's almost like going to a Jedi fight, you know, mm-hmm. the lightsaber going back and forth and you following it around the room and you're just kind of like going, is this really going to fricking work? <laughs> and 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 it did. And I was just, it's unbelievable. It It, it really started to give me um, the ability to start to cope with things in the past. And it's just like, it's almost like water off a duck's back. Really, what sure. I found in my recovery journey is, listen, I, need, I was going to need some forgiveness because I caused a lot of damage, right? Yeah. And, and so for me, it's really, I have to have that same forgiveness for even the people that wronged me, right? It's not okay to pass on traumas. Right. Because that's what happens. It's unaddressed. And we just continue to pass it on down the line and everybody gets hurt because of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, people don't realize or 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 maybe those that are listening to it, it's, a, it's great that you talk about that to help understand that as those in active addiction, you know, there's not an intent to cause trauma. It's just as we often say, we're lying to ourselves already let alone we're going to lie to the fucking world because, you know, there's no alternative but other than to manipulate. And it's not that we aim to be dishonest. It's just our brain to go to our chemicals and get that reaction. That's where it's totally activated. Like every freaking resource goes that way.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy just how your mind will work. It's just like, you know, you wake up. It's like, you know, for me with the cocaine and the heroin is like, My whole life, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. There's no ability to do anything outside of that. Like your whole life is using to not be sick, to get more, to use, to rip people off, to do whatever it takes to get more and to continue this pattern. And that keeps you trapped as well. It's like this revolving spin cycle that winds up with parole violations, penitentiary stints, and you know rehab facilities, and it, once you get caught up in that, I mean, it's very, very hard to get out of. Like, you really have to battle. And then society doesn't make it easier with how we view people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. And then the other barriers is trying to access a service to get off those drugs. <laughs> right. I mean, we're talking. There is, uh, you know, you probably have a better chance at winning the the Lotto Max. Um, than to trying to get out with the services that are available. It's just that challenging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about, about prison. Did you have any, um, times where you were put into any sort of incarceration and had to detox within incarceration? Oh,
1: that is like, I mean, you have to remember when now with the harm reduction services that are in place now, I mean, a lot of, it's a lot easier for people, but you go to prison Right, for you're a heroin user. You give you a cup of water and a couple Tylenol and some Gatorade and tell you to you know drink fluids. Shit. You're gonna you're gonna you know and you go in withdrawal. My withdrawal periods were longer than my stints in prison. Sometimes you know I get out still in withdrawal, like after 35 days. I haven't slept a wink. Yeah, it, it's just it, it it's so punishing. And then. Do you have to as as a substance user, because as as former substance users, we've always had to manipulate the system. Right. Yeah. So for me, when I went to prison, if you drink alcohol, right, and you say you drink alcohol, they give you value for two weeks. Huh. So I said, well, hell, I drink two forties a day hmm. and I use heroin. So that means, OK, medical detox for the alcohol. Will give you the volume for a couple of weeks, which subsided the withdrawal, but they wouldn't give you anything for the heroin. And so we have this hierarchy of what drug user you are. If you're alcohol, because it's socially acceptable, okay, we'll help you. Oh, heroin, not acceptable, you're going to suffer. And to me, that just doesn't make sense because it's, you know, it doesn't show people the ability to get better. So, For substance they're using, which doesn't make them feel good about reaching out, asking for help. I mean, those are the challenges that exist and why we have, I don't think we have so much of an addiction issue. I think we have an untreated trauma issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. agreed. Yeah. And there has to be some that that part of uh mental health that it, it takes place in recovery, you know, it's kind of the you know, the areas that we focus on, of course, uh, spiritual, which some people have a struggle with that one, but uh not only your mental health and your physical health as well, that all have to come intact and people really ignore that mental part oftentimes. They think okay, maybe, you know, I'm dealing with the spiritual. Hey, I get up, I go to work, I eat regularly. But if you're not really touching that trauma area, you leave yourself really susceptible to relapses and going back down that dark road.
1: Yeah, and if it's a chronic relapsing health condition, like we say it is, it's kind of like, then why don't we do more to help people when they relapse, right. right? We're kind of like, they get that. That I mean, it's tremendous. I mean, I used to remember the shame that I had already felt from going back. Oh, it's just, so there's support for people that are in active recovery. Right. But if you relapse, it kind of supports, you know, it's shaky, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. We can't have you over here anymore. Like you, know, we attach this this day. And, and the majority of people who use drugs, they don't struggle with the substance use disorder. You know, They're just people who use drugs on occasion. And unfortunately, even for them, with the supply the way it is even here in Canada, it's all fentanyl now. There isn't heroin on the market. It's fentanyl, synthetic. And it's changed everything on how you have to approach people that are struggling with an addiction or a substance use disorder. Really, you use you die you go to recovery you relapse you can die i mean the risk now for margin of error is that you know nobody going into treatment should ever be asked to leave without having the proper supports in place because we expect people to go to a treatment facility for 4 months it's kind of like walking them to the end of a cliff and saying okay we're done here it's like but there's you know there's no bridge Yeah, Yeah, jump right.
0: Yeah, well, we see it a lot in the Central Valley where we're located at in California, and you know the fentanyl. Uh, Just, you know, getting worse and worse and worse uh, with the illicit drugs. You know, we're seeing that rise with teenagers and like you said, middle class homes and everything. You know, people always have that perception that the addict is the the individual under the bridge or down downtown in the two block radius sitting on the cardboard. And oftentimes it's the kid two blocks down or two doors down from mom and dad.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, majority of our deaths out here are in private residence. So that's going to be a house like, you know, that people own. Yeah. Right. It's not it's it's not people dying on the streets. It's people are dying alone. And there's there's a couple of factors with that. Well, number one, the drug supply is you know, toxic. But uh, number two and number three is bad drug policy and the stigma that surrounds it all. I mean, the stigma is just as deadly as the drugs themselves. Mm -hmm. It drives people into isolation. Why can't, why do I have to go rent a motel to go get high for a couple of days when, you know, if if I was, you know, allowed to go in, you know, or I felt comfortable in front of other people? Well, no, you can't because you might lose your kids. You might lose your job. You might lose all these things. They might throw you in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's just the risk to reward with that is just. No, I'll just isolate. And then, you know, I tell people, well, you could die alone. What about your kids? What about your wife? What about, well, I won't have to deal with when I'm gone. I mean, that's tragic to hear that come out of somebody's mouth.
0: Yeah. Well, and touching on that, you speak in on your TED talk, which, um, you know, people Google uh guy's, uh, guy's name, you'll go, go to his website. You talk about a firefighter that you knew, uh workplace injury. And we we've talked with you know, athletes that fell into using opioids and then going to the legal market and, you know, workplace hockey, occupational hazards. But firefighter, you knew broke his back and it took off from there.
1: Yeah. I I you know, here's a guy that is like, you know, serves the public, will do anything to protect the public. Right. Yeah. Runs into a building to save somebody, falls out the window, breaks his back. You, you know what I mean? Then gets prescribed uh, opioids for the pain. But but then after that, gets cut off. And he wasn't, he, this guy had a beautiful childhood, all the great upbrings of everything. He just became physically dependent. And the pain that happened from that was so unbearable. And they cut him off those pain meds. And then he had to go buy illicit fentanyl off the street, which opened up a whole new uh, can of worms. The only choice that that guy made was running into that building to save that person's life. Right. right. That's the that was he didn't make a choice to have all these other uh, issues come with that, but that's what happens. And cutting off, you know, even pain patients is killing them. I mean, these are people that are physically struggling with pain, and doctors you know, cutting people off. I mean, this is just fueling more people to the illicit drug supply. It's like, listen. At what point do we say the way the laws and policies are in place aren't working? Well, I think it's gone from defeat to debacle.
0: We'll be back with Guy Felicella. He'll tell us a little bit more about the work he is doing now in Canada to bring awareness to the ongoing uh, epidemic of addiction up there. And uh, not only that, we get into some random questions. Guy's a blast to uh, go through these uh, with. Plus... We will also tell you who we got next week, so stick around for that. Breaking news. This important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your pubic service announcement
2: and the news you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase
0: in the USA and Canada. This new trimmer was just released only moments ago and we are one of the first to get our hands on it and share the news. Join over 2 million worldwide who trusted Manscaped with this exclusive
2: offer to you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code KDD
0: at manscaped.com. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0 and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level.
2: What makes this trimmer different than all the other trimmers you may ask? a new multi-function on-off switch that can engage a travel lock created for the
0: people who like to travel. The Lawn Mower 4.0 gives you the ability to turn the 4K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. The new trimmer even allows you to customize your trim all over through additional guard lengths with sizes one through four. And look-wise, it's sleek with a two-tone matte and gloss finish Even features a hot foil stamped black chrome Manscaped logo. Show that mower off loud and proud. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code KDD at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code KDD. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. At P-O-D-G-O C-O. And be sure to add the Knockin' Doors Down podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Well, let's jump ahead to uh, when you finally, your last time when you were finally done in the treatment process for you, because man, eight years, that's freaking awesome.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the last eight years, like, listen, this is what my whole life, from 1983 to 2013 using drugs, right? And survived the first public health emergencies, dueling public health emergencies in British Columbia, which was HIV, where one in four were infected in the downtown east side with HIV, that overdose crisis that happened in the 90s. Five osteomyelitis bone infections, four in my left leg, One in my back where I actually had to learn how to walk again, 20 years of being homeless on the street, and then six overdoses that started when fentanyl started hitting the market in 2012 to 2013, and had to be brought back to life six times just to survive that. And then to pick up with one set of clothes on my back, no support go to a transitional house outside of the area. And it was just basically a house like, listen, you can live here. If you use drugs, we're going to kick you out. And you got to figure out your life hmm. and get into an outpatient program and start doing trauma therapy. And in eight years, like I mean, today, I mean, I have a beautiful wife. I have three beautiful kids. I own my own house. I have a career job. I have, I have a life that's, Uh, you know, understands like my purpose and passion and all that in eight years. So, and also too, well, we laugh about it. Some people laugh about it. I was on uh, welfare from the age of 16 to 45. And, you know, now I have a career job that that pays me really well. uh, And, you know, own my own company that pays me really well to speak. And the great thing about it is, is that I don't care about all that. I care about passing on because everything I have in my life is a direct result of giving back and helping others. And so when you do that and understand that, um, I tell you, like you want to you get out of your self-centeredness? I mean, I was so cold inside. I had to do something. And it felt so good to help somebody else that made me feel good. And that's where the self-esteem and the self-worth started to come back. Sure. It's very hard to repair that when you just believe you're a bag of crap for your whole life. Mm-hmm. And and then to repair that that way, it's been the biggest gift of my life. I mean – and I get to relive my childhood – through my three beautiful kids which is crazy
0: yeah no as a father too i know what you're talking about it is it is a gift it is a trip Um, but being that you go out and you publicly speak and you're so vulnerable how how is it that you and the missus approach uh talking about your life with the kids or are they too young at this point that you haven't really broached that because i know that's something that my kids are now close to teenage years so i'm very open with them about about my substance stuff as well as their mom has been too and some of the stupid stuff we've done because of alcohol or drug use
1: yeah we're going to be those parents that definitely they're too young right now but mm. if they were to ask questions even at this age we're ready we teach our kids it's about learning moments for us because a lot of the times we go into the downtown east side and give back you know we'll we'll go down there and and hand out food in the community and Uh, you know, my daughter, who's four, uh, she sees a guy sleeping on the street. And she I remember her saying to me, uh, Dad, why is the man sleeping on the street? And I just, you know, there's a teaching moment saying, Hey, listen, like, not everybody has the privilege of having a place to live. And um, there's nothing wrong that there's nothing wrong with this person, because they're sleeping there. It's just a circumstance in some people's lives that, um, you know, the circumstances, the system, but, you know, you're trying to explain this, that, Hey, this is not a bad person. Um, this is a a good person. They just have a, a harder life and you have a privileged life. Next time we came down there, we parked in the same area and we were walking down the street. She didn't see the man there. And the first thing my daughter said to me, which knows that kids are absorbing information. She said, dad, dad, the man's not sleeping there. He must have gone to home. And I just, I looked at her and I just said, man, if the world thought like you, Gia, we'd be in a really good spot.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but those are those teaching moments that will always be open with, with our kids. My kids, they don't even notice that I have tattoos. They've <laughs> never pointed them out. You know what they see? They see dad. Right. And that gets skewed as we get older, right? Yeah. Then we start to see the differences in other people and then it becomes these biases that we develop and we start judging people. And so, you know, a lot of us as adults could actually learn for from a child and say, "Sure, Man, they're just they're so innocent."
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's that beautiful thing like where I'll see my uh, my daughter playing with her friends in the neighborhood all different genders nationalities and everything else its just like it's so cool because they just want to have fun and enjoy each other for who they are you know and be themselves it's like you know what point do we start fucking that up
2: you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah my two nephews i don't think they notice any of my tattoos but i'll tell you what the older lady at the supermarket (laughs) as she clenches her purse like lady relax relax all right these arms cost more than that purse did it's okay
1: i i I say that same thing i've actually you know sometimes the funny thing is i'll walk into a store and i'll see floor walkers start following me all over oh
2: yeah same here Uh, buddy yep
1: (laughs) and you know what i love about that i just i love it because i live a life of integrity and when i'm paying for it i'm hoping that somebody else got out with a boatload (laughs) (laughs) you know what i like
2: to do guy just not completely off topic but i'll go to the store and i tried on a jacket this happened one time i was trying on a jacket and then i noticed a security guard like kind of going like this, you know, <laughs> peeking back and forth. And I'm like, is this dude serious? Like, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wear the jacket, and I'm going to continue to shop. And as I go up to the cash register, I said, this is your guys' jacket. Can you scan it? I want the security guard to follow me outside. Because, you know, he's <laughs> stereotyping me or whatever. So she, the cashier was in on it. She was laughing. She goes, yeah, no problem. Scanned it, paid for it. And then he stopped me right when I got outside. And I'm like, there's the receipt. <laughs> Quit judging me, yeah. fool.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, mm. I just like to mess. That's them. great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heck.
4: Um,
0: so, going out speaking, especially with the youth, you said you really, in, uh, that was kind of a really good passionary because, really, you know, education is a big part of prevention. And, uh, you know, you go out and tell your story vulnerably, which that's the greatest thing. Like you said, if it's a cop that comes in there, well, don't do drugs. You could end up seeing me. You know, it's like, no, you could destroy your life. You could end up on streets for 20 years and if you're feeling the things i felt guess what you can deal with it now you don't have to deal with it 20 years later do you have any cool success stories of of speaking with any youth that you know reached out that you really recall
1: oh for sure i mean you know what the crazy thing is i go and do a talk for an hour
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right and before covid there was like an auditorium of like 900 kids Mm -hmm. and then there's a lineup of kids that want to talk there's counselors that are in the school that nobody talks to, right? Yeah. Like I can roll in and tell and and share the story. And we're talking about, you know, kids, listen, the biggest thing that they're trying to figure out is social acceptance. then, uh, you know, they hear of my involvement with gangs as a use, and then the drugs and all that kind of stuff. They come up to me and talk to me about themselves and their struggles. And they're impacted by the same things we are as adults, the stigma, the shame, the isolation. uh, They're dealing with that at a very young age and they don't feel supported. I'm like, Hey, listen, I don't care what your counselors say here. I'm going to tell you that if you need, if you need any help, you can reach out. They reach out through my website. I had a real good success story of a, of a 16 year old kid that, uh, overdosed, uh, he was brought back to life. Luckily for him, he overdosed at a SkyTrain, which is basically like our our our, our subway system sure, here. Sure, sure, yeah. He brought back to life by um, the transit police and a couple outreach workers. And then the school, when uh, they contacted me, uh, we came in. We had a I did a, a talk, and he wanted to talk after. And he said he really has a hard time dealing with the withdrawal. And I was like, oh, God, it's terrible. So we got him on. um, You know, I I gave him a bunch of services to try Ziboxin. He got on Ziboxin. And uh, man, up and goes. He's coming to school. He's doing better. He's not using illicit drugs anymore. And this is kind of like one of those miracle drugs that, you know, stops you from being so hell-bent on using uh, Xanax or, or fentanyl. Right. and and you know he's doing well i also had a, a a family reach out for uh and they wanted to do somewhat i'm not an interventionist i don't like the word um, mm-hmm. but they called me and said would you come in here and, and help and i said listen if you're going to want me to come and help this is what i this is what i'm willing to do i'll lay out a bunch of options and one of those options was uh, do you want to go? Do you need treatment? Like, do you need to go into a physically treatment center? And she didn't want to do that. And I said, and she said, what other options are there? I said, well, you know, if your parents had money, which they did, you could pay for counseling. So they started with that. But they also I said, but there is an option of the to get on so you don't have to use the street drugs. She got on it. Six months later, anyway, the family just reached out a few months ago and said, hey, it's been six months. She just got her first freaking job. Uh, she's, do- she's a completely different person. She's not accessing, she just takes this pill once a day and she's just good. And I said, yeah, who cares? That's amazing. Yeah. And, and a lot of the times in recovery, we have this thing where if somebody's taking a medication, oh, well then they're really not in recovery because they're not abstaining from all substances. I just say, screw that. If somebody takes one pill a day so that they don't go and destroy not only their lives, but the lives around them, and if that pill can do that and give people the ability to be go get a job, be, with, be a dad to their kids or a mom to their kids and show up for family events, and I said, then that's recovery to me. Yeah. Like, you know, people aren't using dirty street drugs. That's recovery.
0: Mm -hmm. I think there's oftentimes a stigma. And I've talked with people about this when it comes to the term recovery, that they look at it as a going back to some point in life. And, And I'd really like to be a part of changing that conversation that it, no, what it is, is it recovery is allowing you from the point forward to create a life moving forward. And those circumstances or whatever it is, you know, for me, it's alcohol. Can't touch it. I'm allergic to it. Other drugs, Never had a, a big impact on me. Not that I go and use them. Once I eliminate the alcohol, I don't have the desire. But you know, right. for some people, you know, it might be illicit drugs, but they're okay to to at a family barbecue, have a beer and call it good. Or like you said, it's somebody that is, you know, hey, this pill. It. it if we had a heart condition, you wouldn't judge a person that has a heart condition for taking a pill every damn day. You would exactly. be like, you'd be like, Hey Bob, did you take your pill? Oh shoot. Thanks. Yeah. I'm 10 minutes late. No big deal. But we do it when it comes to mental health or addiction. We're like, well you did that and you use this. It's like, nah, you know, if I, if I was at that point, there are people that when they come off alcohol, it's so bad that they do take a medication. And if they, drank, it would make them so sick. Fortunately, I didn't have that situation. But we sit and we judge people over and over. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. And just remember how how hard it was to get into your recovery. You know, I always say this to people. I've just never forgotten where I've come from and just the battle that it took to get here. I mean, literally, I had to battle. It's hard to do any living when you're only focused on surviving. Like we should be allowing people to thrive. And, you know, when I got into recovery, the one of the things that uh, I was working in a private abstinence based treatment center. And I mean, you know, I was very grateful that they hired me because, you know, really we punish people for having a criminal. This substance, our substance use and addiction, we get criminalized for it for the rest of our lives. People ask me like, um, you know, when I got my first job, like, well, what jobs have you had? I worked for Boston Pizza in 1986. It's 2014. Yeah, I kind of got derailed somewhere, right? And, you know, yeah. somebody had to take a shot. Like, I mean, people look at that and go, oh my God, we can't hire him. Mean, There's no experience. There's mm-hmm. no nothing. My experience really for me was my lived experience, which is the equivalent to a master's degree that somebody goes to university. But I always tell them, what, I go one up on them. I say, well, listen, have you ever used drugs? No, I've never had problematic substance use. Well, then, okay, for your master's degree, then if you don't think that my lived experience is valid, then I think for your master's degree, you should go tank your life Go use heroin and cocaine for the next five years. Then go run the gauntlet of methadone and uh, other treatments. Then go into treatments and try to do that. Then get into recovery and change your life. Then I'll validate your master's degree. And they just look at me and they go, I oh, know yours is, yours is pretty good too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you kind of lived your shit, you know. I, I, this isn't theory, people. This is actual practice here. Yeah,
1: it's like, and and believe me, then you understand the barriers that are in place. There's nothing like understanding the barriers when you're going through it and living through it and trying to access those services to somebody that says, oh, yeah, there's barriers, but don't have to live through going through those barriers. It's tremendously challenging for a person. Listen, if it takes like six months for you to actively go through all the loopholes just to get the support that you need, and then it does, it fails, You know, it's not the treatment that's blamed. It's you, the substance user that's blamed because you're not ready. And I'm like, well, when does the treatment become accountable for it not being ready for the person? Like, how is that like we blame people? You know, it's this thing with substance use and and mental health that we just blame the person. If this was cancer and somebody cancer came back, are we going to punish them for that? Oh, there you go. Cancer came back like, like, come on. Like, you know, so, but we do this, it's the only health condition that we do this to. And if our society moving forward wants to do anything different, then it has to look at the whole structure of the system and start to say, hey, yeah, maybe it is the treatment we need to look at. You know, treatment centers will say they're 82% success rate, right? right. I'm like, well, what's success? I had, I didn't commit 82% of my crimes when I was in prison. Is that successful? Like, you know, it's like success is really in the eye of the beholder, not the treatment center. It's like, well, what's the, what happened to the person's life? Well, they completed treatment. Yeah. So what? I completed my jail sentence. That didn't mean anything. Like really what happens is. Is the treatment didn't give the proper tools for the person to make it through to the next steps and the continuum of care that exists after that we don't get people jobs we don't work on people's trauma their sole focus is you use drugs here write a set of steps and do this and you'll be better and then go to a meeting uh, uh, every day at seven Mm o'clock it's like that's it
0: yeah. yeah, no, it's pretty. Ridiculous. And for some people, it, it is more simple. But those complex, deeper things, it's just not. And, and yeah. you know, I know for me, I have to, uh, especially during this lockdown pandemic, boy, it was tough. And there's so many uh. people. I mean, we've seen celebrities relapse. and And of course, the thousands and thousands that are out there that we haven't heard about because they're not a high profile name.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's just been, you know, familiar foes to people who struggle with addiction, right? Isolation, Mm -hmm. right? This Mm -hmm. pandemic is just, we're going to have a severe mental health and addiction crisis even after the pandemic because of just all the people that, uh, you know, struggle with isolation, loneliness. Uh, It's just so familiar for us. And, you know, one of the things, too, like I just tell people is, is find your path. Like, if that's Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or Harm Reduction Services, well, I don't care what it is, man. I just don't want people to die. And I want people to get better. And I want people to say to, to me, this is what worked for me. Mm-hmm. Because not always what works for one set of groups of people is going to work for somebody else. And we need to be okay with that and saying, hey, listen, if this person has to take a, a pill, they have to show up here at the meeting. I used to say this to people or people used to say this to me. I was on medication for about the first nine months while I started my recovery journey. And why wouldn't I be? Because I used drugs for freaking 31 years. Um, and people used to say, they didn't judge me for that. You know what they said? Oh my mm. God, he's at a meeting. He's not sticking a needle in his neck. This is amazing. Yeah, totally. You know? And, and it was those things that said, you know, you hang around people. I always tell people if you're going to hang around a group of people, hang around people that are far more successful than yourself.
0: Absolutely. And when you
1: do that, it raises the bar in your own life. And that's where I went into this thing. I wasn't going to get just better. I was going to make changes. Yeah. And I I had dreams. Like I mean, I remember when um I met my wife. Like I just I needed somebody. I just needed you know, it's kind of like the Grinch, where he didn't hate Christmas. <laughs> you know, he just found out that he wasn't, he, he needed love from people. And that's really what yeah. I didn't hate the world. I just needed somebody to love and somebody to love me back. Right. And, and, and my wife is that continuum of care that really taught me how to live. I remember getting into recovery, and this is how long that i have been, you know, not doing normal stuff. I remember trying to, to toast her. Right? The toaster had a side button that you push and the toast would go down. But I was looking for, you know, the, the, the thing. And, and, I'm, and, and, and I'm, tra- I'm staring at this thing and I'm like, and the guy comes by and he goes, oh yeah, hey, that toaster got me too. And I'm like, yeah, how does it work? And he goes, oh, there's a button right here, push the button. And I was like, oh my God, technology. The toast, the toast went down and I thought, why? And he goes, oh, that's a great toaster. <laughs> and, and, but he didn't. But he didn't shame me for that. What right? is this you contraption? I mean? <laughs> yeah. But, hey, when I got a job with the health authority, they said this. Hey, have you ever worked on a, do you know how to use a laptop? I said, well, no. I, you know, I've been in the downtown east side for twenty years. I know what laptops to sell and which ones are good. <laughs> but I don't know how to use it. Actually, they were like, oh, we're gonna hire uh, a tech. Uh, specialist to work with you. So you understand that, but that wasn't somebody trying to, you know, and for me with my, uh, comprehension disorder, um, is I have to learn through seeing things. You can't just give me a bunch of directions yeah. and hand me a piece of paper. I have to learn visually. So I have to, sh- you have to show me how
2: it's done. I'm the exact same way. I like, oh, there's directions, read them. I'm like, no, just, show me (laughs) like I'm not reading that that's gonna take too long I need to see somebody do it I'm a visual learner yeah
1: yeah and and that's when I discovered that um really my therapist was the one that brought it out so how I see things like uh, I couldn't understand certain words like how I do a test is I don't read the book I read the questions on the test And then look for the answers in the book. Sure. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't, I can read a book, but I just can't remember reading it. Yeah. And so for me, I have to physically do it a different way. And this is my uh, learning disabilities that I've had to function with without having any support. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, of my challenges really came from that undiagnosed learning disabilities.
0: Yeah. Ah, and I can relate to that too. It's funny hearing you guys talk about this. This guy gives me shit because I'm a little kid. You know, it's one of the things I found in 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 recovery was going back to doing the things I enjoy as a kid, and that's Legos. So it's a visual instruction. There's if it was written out, I would mess that up. But there's the picture. Match the picture. You're good, buddy. Uh, you know. So yeah, it's those kind even of things. in
1: trauma even in trauma therapy it's not all about dealing with your traumas it's about remembering what you used to love yeah mm-hmm. and and my therapist was like what did you used to love and i was like oh god like i, I mean i used to love playing ping pong and i go "Well, it's pandemic can't really do that and she, and then i i remembered an old hobby i used to collect hockey cards and baseball cards and i said man i used to love doing that she says why don't you start why don't you do it again? So I now really one of the things I discovered was my old passion to collect hockey cards and and baseball cards again, and how fun it is. And so I I, I this is what I do with my kids now,
4: yeah. and
1: it's just it's so amazing, man.
0: Yeah, I'm loving the photo behind you there. You get the uh, the guys playing puck. Uh, what uh, what. What is that picture of in the background? Hopefully people that aren't watching on the YouTube, you'd have to see on, on YouTube. The guy's got a great photo behind him.
1: That's uh, Bobby Orr. Okay. The Yeah, the Bobby Orr iconic, uh, you know, game seven winning goal scorer, you know. <laughs> Dramatic Boston Bruins. I'm not a Bruins fan. So. <laughs> this is my this is my father in law's uh, office.
0: So oh, awesome! Uh, ob- because <laughs> that's not the mine. three kids. That,
2: that's not mine. <laughs> yeah, don't-,
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't saddle you I'm with a, the Boston I'm Bruins. A-
1: yeah, I'm a I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan, so I'm probably even more hated than the interview.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, my daughter was really into hockey there for a little bit. She, whatever reason, hooked on the Maple Leafs, and it was like, okay, kid, you know. So we went to a couple of games, and they're like, "This is cool." I'm like, "I know. I've never been to hockey either." Oh, know? hockey in person's oh, yeah.
2: a blast. When you go to the games, that's an absolute blast for that sure.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, anything like that is, it's, it's really good. So that's the thing What we forget too, when we're using substances, we, we often forget the things that we used to enjoy. Like, yeah. you know, I, I just lost those memories because of layers of trauma sure. and burying all the feelings. We forget the things that we used to love doing, but, That's part of recovery, too. It's it's repairing that and remembering, oh, my God, I used to love doing this. Let's start that again. Mm -hmm. My wife actually, unfortunately, the hockey card stuff is kind of expensive now. (laughs) And my my wife has given me a limit to where it's like, (laughs) okay, shut her down, pal. Well,
2: they are. Cards alone are expensive. Now, like my nephews, they'd get into basketball. We'd collect football cards and stuff. Not only are they hard to find, but when you do find them, they are getting pricey. They're getting up there.
1: Oh, it's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, well, I always said, my wife, I've dropped, you know, probably millions of dollars on dope. So if I'm going to drop a million dollars on hockey cards, it <laughs> might not be a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially there's some investments that I've made in some cards for sure for my kids. You know, anything I do is really uh, for my kids. I, I mean, you know, for their future and, yeah. uh, you know, repairing relationships sure. uh, is, is, is is always those things that uh you know i do moving forward
2: yeah absolutely yeah uh
0: real quick before we get to some fun random questions guy i know for me my tattoos i'm not as covered as you or mikey for that matter but they have a personal meaning anything personal about the ones that that you've gotten because you got what full left sleeve and then one on the neck too
1: yeah well my wife
2: uh oh you're brave you got your wife's name on you
0: I know. Hey, got my
1: wife here. This is a friend that passed of uh, a drug overdose, mm-hmm. a good friend of mine. So that's the memorial. Uh, this is kind of the. These were all done in the penitentiary, by the way. So oh, shit. all uh,
2: single no. needle, okay. huh?
1: All single uh, needle.
2: That's yeah. right. Tough. That's right.
0: Boy. Well, yeah. Not only is it and, tough, but that
2: probably took forever. I mean, I'm sure you had free time in there. Obviously, you're, yeah. you know, but <laughs> Dude, no, single needle man. man, that takes for time, that takes forever. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Even, even, uh, I know a lot of tattoo artists as well. They've all said, Who was the guy that did the tattoos? Yeah. I'd love to hire him. Sure, like, sure. And, and I mean, there's a lot of talented people in the prison system that do like amazing artwork. So, uh, you, you know, this is kind of the a lot of the pain and, and suffering on this. I haven't finished this one yet, but this one is going to be kind of like, the evolution of like a Phoenix rising from the ashes type Very thing. Cool. Yeah. It's going to be that kind of like the redemption arm of, of the past. So, and that's, you know, that that's the meaning that it's always had for me. So, and, and that, awesome. that
2: is really crazy too. Like you get, I had a buddy who was in jail for about six years and he came out, you know, covered his chest, half sleeve and his stomach and they're beautiful tattoos. Like they were done, really well and it's like wow that guy was in jail with you and he's like oh yeah i got knocked all this it's like better yeah. than mine <laughs> yeah
1: I, I i mean the guy that did mine he was a he was a professional and he was amazing yeah uh and he was such a good guy too and obviously when you're in prison too one thing i always tell people my wife says when i don't want to answer a question I'll answer, I had tattoos before they were
3: cool. And she'll look at me like,
1: why would you say that? Like I go, well, that just throws everybody off. She goes, yeah, but that's not the question. I know. And then then people really don't say anything after that. I don't know what he's talking about. uh."
2: Guy, I got to ask you, did your tattoo artist say anything about getting your wife's name as you were doing it?
1: No, this one was done uh, not in the penitentiary. I, this is the one that I got uh, done on the outside. Right, right. And, what, did he like yeah. say
2: anything about it? Like, oh, you sure? Or was mm-hmm. he kind of, he- because I got my ex's name tattooed on me, and my ex was with <laughs> me at the time. And as she went to the bathroom, the tattoo artist said, don't worry, I can easily cover this up. And I was just like, all right. <laughs> and it worked out perfectly, because two months later, we broke up. So. <laughs> Life lessons,
0: right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, when I when my wife and and, and me, you know, we'd met through her father who was in uh uh recovery as well. Oh, okay. That's awesome. And um and and how we met, I, I'd been, you know, struggling with substances. But when we met and when she saw me at the transitional house when I left Surrey, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she came and showed up at the house. I wrote her a letter saying, Hey, I'm gonna try to get my life together. She showed up and I remember when we were we went for coffee and she said like are you serious like are you I, I'm all in on you if you're all in on changing your life and I said well you know I haven't had any better offers lately so I'm gonna take, <laughs> you out on my oh,
2: <laughs> Gotta take her up funny. on that
0: I love yeah
1: it. and the rest is the rest is kind of hits. yeah scary.
0: married three kids later it seemed to worked out for you right Uh,
1: not too not too bad for a guy that uh, was homeless and struggled with addiction for for decades right not too bad
0: i think he did pretty damn good uh guy can you tell a little bit more uh, about how people can get a hold of you um you know we'll put all that in the description of the podcast as well but a little more on it and maybe if they want to inquire not about just reaching out to you but hopefully knock on wood when this pandemic opens up about getting out there and speaking at their uh, institution
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, you can always go to my website, uh, which is just guyfellachella.com or you can, you know, DM me on Twitter uh, at guyfellachella, uh, you know, uh, email me whatever um, there's a direct link on the website to email. Uh, you, you know, you can do that. And uh, um, obviously for me, one of the, I would love to come and and speak and, and, places uh around the globe i mean obviously with the pandemic it's actually helped me a little bit in the sense that um i've been doing a lot of meetings in the uk scotland Mm -hmm. uh even united states uh, across canada just file like this so uh those are all options as well but yeah really trying to give people the understanding that you know hey guess what people do recover when they're supported and And, um, you know, let's let's change the narrative of substance use and addiction and make it to a way where it's presentable and accessible for people to access.
0: Absolutely. All right. Are you ready for some uh, fun, random questions? Let's do it. You're up first, Mikey. Guy, if they were to make a movie about
2: you, who would you cast to play yourself?
1: uh, Danny Trejo. Oh, Trejo. Uh, Trejo.
2: Yeah. yeah i love danny trejo that yeah <laughs> that's awesome
0: <laughs> yeah uh we actually we we were doing interviews in la and ate at his talk i was gonna say
2: he's got a bomb um mexican restaurant in the grove in los angeles
0: yeah oh yeah oh. No, i just think
1: i think he's just a class act
0: for he sure is. for yeah, sure he would be cool to speak with as well uh all right well no you already talked about maybe your guilty pleasure being trading cards um uh pet peeves do you have any pet peeves the reply all email <laughs> i always okay. forget to push that one okay okay uh, that th- you hate reply all emails or that people don't reply all no they re- keep replying all it's like
1: they ask a question specifically to one person and then you get this reply all thread that happens all day and you're like it's, no, it was specifically sent to you, not to me. You reply back to the reply, the sender, not to everybody. We don't need to hear any more of your chain of events. Of, and it'd be like one email, like, yes, email. No, maybe, question mark. And you, oh, it's just to the death of me. My wife always says, well, your life's pretty freaking good if that's what you're complaining about. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: All sure, right. <laughs> if that's the
0: worst problem of the day,
2: yeah. All right. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what one movie and one album would you take with you?
4: Ooh. Oh.
1: Well, one album. Oh man, I I guess I got to go with oh, I got to go with ACDC's Back in Black. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And and then um one movie usual suspects
0: oh that's so good that is such a good movie i got a story about that but that's another time uh (laughs) maybe after we're done with the podcast no one else would care uh if you could have dinner with just one person living or not who would it be and why
2: Well, I, anybody, one person, anybody. anybody famous, not famous, anybody you want. I I think I'd have
1: to have, I, I'd love to, I'd love to have dinner with my grandmother um. uh, who's Pat, who passed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, just because, um, she, she died in 2013, just, uh, six months into my recovery and just to have the ability to to she knew that uh, she she witnessed the first birth of our our son. Mm-hmm. And then she died like a few days after that. Mm-hmm. We have one picture of her holding it. I think it would be to because my grandmother always said, like, you're going to do big things one day. And she never judged me for using drugs. So I, I if I could have dinner with her, just to say, this is what's freaking happened. Oh, yeah. What You said has happened, grandma. I love uh, it. grandma's. No, be- man,
2: grandma's. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one more, Mikey. Yeah, let's do one more. All right. Um. <laughs> okay. we did that one. Okay. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> the uh, like of all superpower superheroes,
0: sure. So. Even if you got one you've made up that hasn't been presented yet, <laughs> hey, we're copywriting that by the way. Marvel, DC, don't come and steal what guys come up with. They probably already own it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I'd probably just that if you could just have a, a button that you could push that would just stop people from talking.
2: <laughs> wow. I had no idea how much alike you and I were, man. As far as the reply emails, I hate people talking, too. <laughs> just, <laughs>
0: just, just it just, like, hit the mute button or just, just like, stop button. them altogether, huh? I did yeah, that to you, you the mute. other day, remember? I'm
2: just, what are you doing, Mikey? I'm, I'm trying to find the mute button. <laughs> <laughs> no but just
1: mute them and then until you unmute them like they can't talk to anybody <laughs>
2: <laughs> i love it uh, get and get rid of
0: the remote no i'm just <laughs> oh shoot uh, we would
2: unmute them guy we would unmute. eventually them. <laughs> maybe
0: uh guy we always like to leave the guests with the uh the last word anything that they want to lend to uh that's inspirational or even to challenge folks or let them know that, uh, you know, if they're suffering someone that they love is, or just coming through recovery, what, what you would have to say to them?
1: I I think the best thing that, you know, I realized in my life was as I got to a point, all the stuff that I was suppressing and holding down is that I didn't reach out soon enough to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to have that ability, like, don't feel the shame. It's okay to ask for help. Don't let your ego and your pride get in the way from stopping you from, from reaching out and receiving the help that you need. Because uh, oftentimes we, um, of how we've been treated in the past will hinder us from the ability to, to stop uh, reaching out in the future. And just listen, if you're struggling, it's okay. Like reach out to a person that you can talk to and accept the support so that you can improve the quality of your life. And, and tell them, you know, what you need and what you need and what you see uh to move forward, and what would work for you and and if you keep doing that, you know you're gonna talk to the right person that's going to help you
0: absolutely well guy felicella, thank you good sir this is uh this has been a real pleasure, and we definitely appreciate your time
1: no, hey guys, it was a blast awesome uh keep up the great work and and uh Anytime you guys need anything, please reach out. And thanks for sending me those gifts. I'm truly humbled to be here, and uh, you know I hope this inspires other people to 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 make some changes in their lives to be better people as well, on both sides—people with substance use and people who view them.
2: Right, absolutely. right, absolutely. Congrats on the eight years, too. Thanks, my friends. You, you guys have it. a great
1: day. You All too. right, guy.
0: Guy Felicello, what a good dude. What a sweet guy. I still want to go visit Canada. I know you're out, but I'll go hang with Guy. I'll go to Canada. It's super friendly over there. We're very, we'd be very welcomed. I would, I would, well, no, we'll just, being that I have the last name LeChance, we'll just lie about being American.
2: You just won't tell me your last name.
0: <laughs> uh, or mine. Mine fits. Mine is like Smith in Canada. Is it? Yeah, because it's French. So it's like when I was a kid and I went up there, I opened the phone book to see if there's any LeChances, and there was like 9 million fucking LeChances. How in many Canada. Iraqis did you see in there? I didn't look. Uh, I was only six uh, years old. Why would you put that on me? You you're weren't even born. To always, yet. You're
2: supposed to have that sense that I would be gracing the world with my presence very
0: soon. <laughs> you could never mind. <laughs> uh, Mikey, Jason. We got a guest next week. We sure do. What name does he go by? He goes by the name of Mr. Gary Busey. That's right. We talked with Gary Busey not only about uh, the accident that caused his head trauma, but uh, some of those famous movie roles that he's been in uh, Lethal Weapon, Buddy Holly Story. The list goes on and on. Plus, a little bit about his uh, biography that he's put out, the uh, Buseyisms that are in there, and so much more. It's you, an interesting conversation with Mr. Gary Busey. You will hear a lot of Buseyisms, so get ready, people. That is right. <laughs> Again, we thank 5150LTM. Click that link in the podcast description. Use the code KDD20 for 20% off. And also don't forget Carlos Vieira's autobiography Knocking Doors Down. We just gave away a copy of it digitally as well as a Kindle for our Mother's Day contest. So make sure you're following us on social media. That's at Knocking Doors Down on Facebook and Instagram, at KDD Media Company on Twitter, because uh, we've got another contest coming up for Father's Day. Mm-hmm. So follow us. You want to get some cool free swag from us? Uh, anything else, Mikey? No, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down.
4: 5150 is a lifestyle we believe in pushing yourself finding your passion knowing your dreams and working hard always striving to make those dreams a reality we believe life's too short to sit back and say what if go after it grab it and make it happen Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150ltm.com. That website again. 51FIFTYLTM.com. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the Race for Autism, Race to End the Stigma, and Race to Be Drug Free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved.
3: we are sharing is accurate we welcome any comments suggestions or correction of errors